Hello, everyone. This is Admiral Jamie Fogo, broadcasting from the Center for Maritime Strategy at the Navy League of the United States in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Maritime Nation, a podcast designed to dive deeply into the policy challenges facing America's sea services and the role of the United States as a sea power on the global stage. I'm joined today by my partner and navalist, Dr. Steve Wills. We will continue to provide you with high-quality analysis of the most pressing maritime security challenges by joining in conversation with key experts and practitioners. Today, I'm delighted to be joined uh, by Dr. Nicholas A. Lambert, a renowned British economic and naval historian and author of The Warlords and the Gallipoli Disaster, How Globalized Trade Led Britain to Its Worst Defeat in the First World War. Nick is also a friend. I'm delighted that he was able to come down from his home in Pennsylvania today to be with us. And about two years ago, it was the editor-in-chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet, who approached me and asked me to review The Warlords and the Gallipoli Disaster for Proceedings Magazine. I did, and I was struck by the level of detail and the analysis that Nick was able to bring to his readers on understanding the strategic and tactical decisions whereby governments commit large numbers of troops and resources to deter or defend far from their own shores. It requires a deep dive into the details that can take a considerable amount of time and patience. Dr. Lambert does that in his wonderful account entitled The Warlords and the Gallipoli Disaster. Let me just give you uh, a couple of the casualty statistics from the book. It was a Pyrrhic victory, uh, not really on the part of the Turks in Chanakali or Gallipoli or the Commonwealth. Um, Turkey suffered 250,000 casualties. The French, who were fighting alongside the Commonwealth, suffered 27,000. And Britain, Australia, and New Zealand, and India suffered 115,000 casualties. Now, novice historians who have read or seen the play Les Miserables about the French Revolution know that it started over the rising cost of bread. Not many know that Great Britain was pressured to embark on a dangerous naval campaign in the Dardanelles, culminating in an amphibious landing on Gallipoli over the rising cost of wheat. Dr. Lambert does a meticulous job of making the case for strategic and tactical errors over a fear of a disruption in the marketplace. How apropos to the situation in the Black Sea region today. So, Dr. Lambert, could you please uh, open by telling us why you chose to write on this subject in particular? Good morning, Admiral, and thank you for inviting me. Um, well, why I chose to write on this subject, that goes back quite a long way uh, to when I was an undergraduate at Oxford. Uh, originally, I was an economist, and, uh, but I decided uh, in the winter of, I think, 90, uh, 1985 uh, to audit a class uh, on the Dardanelles uh, run by Professor Sir Michael Howard, who was then the uh, Regis Professor of History at Oxford. And, uh, well, the subject just hooked me there and then. A couple of years later, uh, Professor Howard invited me into his office, and so I march in and stand at the regulation three feet away from the desk uh, at attention, and he says to me, it's come to my attention, Mr. Lambert, that uh, you're intending to stay on here at Oxford. Yes, sir. Going, um, and, and to read a, um, 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 a doctorate in economics. Yes, sir. That's right, sir. Hmm, very interesting. Um, from what I've heard, 
you would make a third-rate economist. However, I've observed in you the potential to be a second-rate historian. (laughs) (laughs) I suggest you reconsider your options. And so I did. Well, that was a compliment from uh, uh, Sir Michael Howard. And uh, just for our readers and our listeners, um, when you say that you're going to read economics for the Brits, that means that you're going to study and you're going to enter into a doctoral program for several years. Correct. Uh, In your case, uh, you were diverted into history, and thankfully so, because uh, your books are just outstanding. And I I must uh, also tell our listeners that you once occupied – the uh, class of 1957 chair at the United States Naval Academy, where you taught our midshipmen and our future Marine officers. Yes, I had two years at uh, the Naval Academy, and uh, I didn't think I would enjoy it nearly as much as I did, but I did. I thoroughly enjoyed teaching the midshipmen. They're my kind of people. They're very good at asking stupid questions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wish you'd been there when I was a midshipman. I would have thoroughly enjoyed your course. Well, Nick, in your view, uh, what do you make of the geopolitical and military crisis in the Black Sea region today. And by that, I mean, we're in the middle of a war in the Ukraine. So how does this all comport with your study of history? Well, it's eerily familiar to the events of 107 years ago. Um, It's quite extraordinary. So 107 years ago, uh, we have a massive shock to the global trading system, um, which, of course, was the beginning of the First World War. And today, we're just coming out of a massive shock to the global trading system caused by the COVID pandemic. And then back in 1914-15, hard on the heels of this shock to the system, um, while the system is still substantially deranged, you have a global food crisis. And it's exactly the same today. And it all began in uh, 1914-15 with the, uh, the great drought in Australia. Um, I should back up a bit and explain back in 1914, uh, there were only seven countries in the world that were responsible for the export of 92% of all wheat. And they were Canada, United States, Argentina, Russia, Romania, India, and Australia. And anyway, to... Uh, Spoken without, like a true historian, sir. You've got a great memory. Yes. Um, well, yeah, I can count to seven. If it was more than, uh, <laughs> more than ten, I would struggle because I've only got ten fingers. Um, the, um, but it all began, and I don't know how much detail you want on this, but it all began with a great drought in Australia when Australia is, um, you know, which is supposed to be a net export. It was net importer that year. It's, it's the great drought in Australian history. Anyway, to, um, to, 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 to cut it short, basically one by one, each of those big seven went steadily offline. Mm. And, um, and it culminates really in the decision by India to embargo the export of its wheat, uh, which was uh, number six going offline. And that really did send expectations on prices through the roof. And uh, funnily enough, it was exactly the same situation as today. I mean, was it last Sunday, I think? Uh, the Indians export embargo the right. export of wheat. Right. Um, right. I, I just, uh, yes, I, I, I couldn't, uh, I was stunned by that. And I know that because I'd had a conversation a few weeks previously saying all it would take, it would just need to embargo the import. And everyone was saying, oh, that'll never happen. Absolutely impossible. Sure enough, they did it. And, uh, but that, um, in 1914, when that happened, uh, that transformed expectations around the world, and the impact upon price was extraordinary. Uh, when you started looking in uh, at the uh, the projected uh, delivery um, in futures, the futures price of wheat, 
the future projections move from doubling of the price to quadrupling or even quintupling. And you, know, you can cope with maybe a doubling of the price of wheat, but a quadrupling or a quintupling, that's a whole different story. That's sort of level of catastrophe. And that uh, persuades the British government that something must be done. Well, it's like gas prices, right? Gas in uh, the United States has gone up to, you know, in some cases over $5 a gallon. It tends to be elastic. You know, we're coming up on Memorial Day weekend here, and people are going to travel no matter what if they have the means to be able to pay that price. But it's not absolutely necessary for survival. I mean, in some cases to generate electricity it is, but uh, wheat, barley, and grain are necessary for survival, just like water. You have to be fed and you have to drink. And it's interesting you bring up the case of the Indians. I was surprised too, but when I thought about it and, uh, you know, Prime Minister Modi's decision, he's got over a billion mouths to feed. So uh, I guess it's an India first and then uh, the rest of the world second, which brings into question this whole thing for the last 20 years we've talked about globalization and interdependency of economies. I think uh, politicians and leaders are waking up today that uh, it is much better to try to be autonomous and depend on one's own uh, geographic territory for generating things like uh, energy and food, and uh, certainly has become Mm -hmm. a hot topic nowadays. Well, back in, uh, in 1915, the wheat was coming from Russia's farm belt and passing through the Dardanelles on its way to markets in Europe, uh, the United States and elsewhere. The sale of Russian wheat helped fund the war effort in Russia against Imperial Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Russia remained one of Great Britain's closest allies at the time. The British, the French, and the Russians were uh, unified by the Triple Entente. And funding of Russian forces in the field depended on the balance of trade and continued sale of wheat kept the price stabilized and prevented Great Britain and France from having to provide Russia with enormous loans. Restricting access through the Dardanelles, or the Bosphorus today, by the Turks upset the balance of the market. And in January 15, um, in your book, Grand Duke Nicholas Nikolaevich, head of the Russian army, sent the famous Russia telegram to Lord Kitchener, requesting a naval or military demonstration against Turkey to relieve pressure on Russian troops in the Caucasus. So can you tell us, you know, what happened to drive the British to embark on the operation in the Dardanelles and then Gallipoli in 1915? And I I think you would agree uh, from the writing in your book, it was an unmitigated disaster. Yes, um, complete unmitigated disaster. Uh, No other way to qualify it. Well, what really changed is the uh, arrival in London of the reports by the Agriculture Department and by the Treasury Department looking at projected prices of wheat going into the spring and over the summer. And uh, I think I've mentioned before that originally they were expecting prices to double, which would have been bad but manageable. But the latest reports that came into the cabinet, which is round about the 12th of January through the 18th of January, were indicating that uh, prices wouldn't double, they would quadruple or even quintuple. And that scared the politicians because they were basically afraid of, uh, to put it crudely, bread riots in the streets. And Nick, if you could uh, continue on that line a bit, you're also feeding millions of troops in the field at the same time, which is something you wouldn't be doing in peacetime as well. That is true, yes. Um, but the um, I think it's important to uh, remember that it 
isn't really necessarily about, we weren't talking about starvation and much as today, it's actually the price that mm -hmm. is what really matters. It's the price you're going to be paying for the wheat. And that's much more a function of the globalized economic system in which we live today. Uh, and back then, of course, Absolutely. in that um, you know, it just takes a slight adjustment in expectations for prices to go up and another slight adjustment, and it goes up not proportionally, but exponentially. Absolutely. The other thing I might add, too, is when you mentioned the word Gallipoli in the United States, and people immediately turn to Sir Winston Churchill and his role. But it's not about Churchill in this case. It's much more about the other warlords that you're speaking of. Admiral Fogel already talked about Grand Duke Nicholas, uh, but you've got uh, Prime Minister Asquith. Uh, you have Kitchener, who you spoke of, but also Sir Edward Grey, the unfortunate recipient of some of this as the Secretary of State. Uh, so... Why didn't these people write on this as well? Well, they were looking at the world through. I mean, when Winston Churchill first proposes to go to the Dardanelles, he's not proposing any sort of strategy. He's proposing, uh, he's basic, he, he's asked, well, what can the Navy do? And so he's saying, well, we can do the following operations, including potentially forcing the Dardanelles. And he then says to the, the War Council, uh, well, if you can fit a strategy around this, then we can do it. He's got, the he's got it completely reversed. And um, after reviewing uh, this Winston Churchill plan and a dozen others that came with it, which is characteristic of Winston Churchill, uh, basically the War Council initially decided to set the whole thing aside as just the latest crazy madcap Winston Churchill adventure. And uh, so they set this aside. Uh, but then... The week of, uh, this is getting quite detailed, I know, but the week of the 20th of January, uh, there's a cabinet subcommittee set up, chaired by the Prime Minister. Uh, the Deputy Prime Minister's there and all the, ex the relevant experts from the agriculture and trade departments. And they're reviewing the numbers and they're saying is really something must be done about this. And, and what are the potential options in containing the price of red? And... The Prime Minister reviews the options, and some of them are things like you know, rationing and price controls and state control over bakeries and the importation of bread. And this is very heavy level of intervention in uh, the economy. This isn't something that a liberal Western, uh, a Western capitalist country is going to do or very much like. And uh, the, uh, the, the, the secretary of the committee records in the minutes uh, the Prime Minister would have none of it. It would be much <laughs> cheaper and easier to storm the Dardanelles. And the fascinating thing is that the Secretary was none other than John Maynard Keynes, <laughs> the famous economist, <laughs> who was also involved in this because up until then, the, the plan had been to uh, control the crisis through the manipulation of a wheat futures market. And so the government was uh, secretly manipulating the price of wheat on Chicago. Uh, through the control of market-sensitive information. Uh, they were timing their releases and they were trading in wheat futures. And, um, but, uh, and, and the money man involved in that was actually John Maynard Keynes, which, of course, is why he's, the, he's on the committee as well. Uh, as I say, it's a little bit intricate, but unfortunately the market forces were too strong for such a subtle measure uh, to work. And so the government has fallen back on the options, well... You have to do something about it. You cannot let the price of wheat quadruple 
or quintuple uh, because we're going to have riots in the street and that'll be potentially written out of the war. So there are important parallels to the uh, economic situation uh, then in World War I and today in the 21st century. Uh, today, uh, Russia and Ukraine are at war. Uh, Russia is currently conducting a blockade of Ukrainian ports, which allow for the, under normal times, the export of wheat, uh, barley, uh, corn, and uh, grain. Um, about 50% of the world's supply of uh, uh, wheat, barley, grain, sunflower seed, and sunflower oil. And so this is going to create a, uh, a world food crisis, and there's been a lot of uh, discussion of that in social media and in news media. The West, and the United States inclusive, and NATO are not at war with Russia. We're trying to avoid that. Uh, back in uh, the time of your book in 1915, France and the United Kingdom and Russia were at war with the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Turkey inclusive. And so uh, the warlords made a decision to force their way into the Dardanelles, uh, also known as the Bosphorus, also known as the Turkish Straits. And that decision started with uh, a naval bombardment of uh, Turkish artillery along the coast that was enforcing this stricture and then led to uh, an amphibious assault on Gallipoli. Can you tell us how they came to that decision? Because, again, it led to 125,000 deaths of Commonwealth troops and 250,000 Turks. Yes. Well, it was the desire by the politicians or the anxiety by the politicians to do something. And so, as I mentioned, uh, Asquith said it's cheaper and easier to take the Dardanelles. And there were a number of very senior naval and military officers who said, this is crazy. Uh, this is the most heavily defended waterway in the world. We actually studied this very closely as recently as eight years ago, and we concluded you don't touch this with a 10-foot pole. And, um, and chief amongst these people, um, or the officers who are suggesting this is a foolish idea, was Admiral Jackie Fisher. Um, made Sir it, Jackie Fisher. Oh, Jackie Fisher. When the money runs out, it's time to think. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're there again. We are. And uh, he's, uh, he taught Winston Churchill so much. But anyway, that's uh, but he, you know, Jackie Fisher is saying, don't do this. And there's a couple of other military officers. There's a director of military operations called um, General Corwell who's saying, don't do this. But the politicians just didn't want to hear it. And so they ignored the advice of their senior advisors. And because you, you could always find some can-do officers. <laughs> and there were can-do officers aplenty um, in uh, Churchill's office. And so uh, they were ignored. And so they pressed on. And um, so they, as you rightly say, they first send in the fleet. And a quarter of the fleet is sunk in a day. Uh, a quarter fleet. of the attacking of force. The, of the attacking Royal force. Navy. Four. A quarter of the Four. Royal Navy. Yeah. Well, not, not of the Royal Navy because the these French are old ships. Yeah. There, oh, were, there okay. was a couple of French and a couple of British and there was a couple of others that were seriously crippled. But anyway, the 16 battleships attack, four go down. Wow. And uh, which causes uh, Jackie Fisher and a couple of other officers to say at the War Council, we told you so. And uh, so, but then it... Uh, there's the escalatory logic kicks in a little bit like you know, they, they don't they've got sunk costs they can't right. afford to back out so right. they double down and they decide to uh, send uh, an amphibious assault in and again uh, people are saying is this you need to slow down and you need to think about this you need to plan properly 
And the politicians just kept saying, no, no time, no time at all. We're going now. And uh, Fisher and a number of the other senior generals were all saying, uh, no, this is going to be a disaster. In fact, I've got the private correspondence of every divisional commander involved. And every one of them wrote beforehand to their wives, girlfriends, friends back home saying, we don't like this at all. This is going to end in disaster. If we get on the beach, it's a miracle. Everyone was telling them. And, but the politicians insisted they go ahead. You know, there's a, there's a great movie about Gallipoli. It was done about 20 years ago. I saw it uh, you know, when I was a young man. And uh, the last scene of the charge against the, uh, the Turkish uh, forces entrenched in the hill is uh, just a, a bloodletting for the Commonwealth. And then there's uh, also Russell Crowe in uh, The Waterfinder. That's a very popular movie amongst the Turks because it tells uh, both sides of the story. And uh, I've actually walked the battlefield at Chinakale, and you can look down from the entrenched Turkish positions and uh, the Commonwealth's requirement to fight uphill from the beachhead against a rugged and elevated terrain for the British and the Anzac troops, which was insurmountable. Furthermore, the Turks were defending sovereign soil. It was, it was their home field, and uh, they were ready to die for it. In fact, I remember as uh, Turkish officers gave us this tour, you know, I was there with uh, Admiral Stavridis. Uh, it was a 36-year-old lieutenant colonel named uh, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk who bluntly told his men when they ran out of ammunition, I do not order you to attack. I order you to die, unquote. And the majority of them did fighting for their country, much more so than the German counterparts and, uh, and the Commonwealth. And so um, I see uh, dangerous parallels uh, to what is transpiring today. And uh, I, I know you don't have a crystal ball, Nick, but as we look at this uh, unfolding uh, crisis of wheat in the world and the fact that uh, Russian forces are blockading the Ukraine, uh, I, I suspect that there will probably be international action. Uh, what do you think might happen? Well, there are, uh, number one, they're going to be very careful. It needs to be thought through. And uh, I'm not sure it's a terribly good idea. I mean, yes, it's going to be the problem is, I suspect, you're going to have the politicians desperate to do something because the prices are going through the roof. And um, cautious voices uh, will not be listened to and can-do officers will be. Uh, but so what could they do? And if we're talking about the United States Navy, well, there's talk of two things I've heard. Uh, one of them is to um, get involved in minesweeping. Well, that doesn't seem a very sensible idea because that's putting U.S. naval personnel, either on ships or in helicopters, into a combat zone uh, involving the Russians. Uh, the potential for misunderstandings, shall we say, or escalation yeah. just seem limitless. Mistakes, miscalculations, it, et cetera. Yeah, it's uh, very, I mean, that's painting a target on somebody's back. Yeah. Um, and if someone gives that order, I think whoever gives it needs to be on the first ship in or on the first helicopter. <laughs> so they'll take the consequences. Okay. They're some of the slowest, <laughs> least protected assets, yes. both right. helicopters yeah. and minesweeping ships. Yes. So not By nature of the conops, they have yeah. to move slowly. And even if you can get them in, I mean, the helicopters you can get in, but the ships have to go through the, uh, the Dardanelles and through the Bosphorus, which means Turkey has to make a decision. And Turkey, if you've noticed, is being very, very, very quiet indeed. Uh, but it uh, means going through their territorial waters. And yes, it's governed by this so-called uh, the Montreux Convention, 
which is a horribly complex document. And there are so many qualifications. And what is war? It doesn't define it. And is a minesweeper a warship or is it an auxiliary? It depends. Um, Anyway, so that's one option. And I don't like the look of that. And then the other option that I see being uh, bandied about, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, an editorial uh, yesterday, uh, supporting the idea of uh, an international task force being sent in to escort uh, grain ships out of Odessa. Well, again, um, it's difficult to know where to begin. First of all, I think involving U.S. Navy ships in that is going to be rather dangerous, somewhat problematic, because they're NATO, for any NATO ships. I mean, if you're going to do that, first of all, I would say is maybe involve the Chinese, the Indians, and the Turkish navies under their own flags. The Chinese, the Indians, and the Turks. Yeah, now, that's an interesting proposition. It's, uh, yeah, it would be quite something if you can pull that off. Yeah. But anyway, it, that would possibly give the Russians pause for thought before they um, lob a missile in the general direction of a warship. If they're thinking one of the neutrals um, is uh, going to be potentially hit. But uh, before all of that, um, I, I just can't help uh, but wonder, going back to the events in 1915, you know, the British basically attacked the Dardanelles on the assumption that all the wheat was there sitting at Odessa to just come right out. And it turned out um, four days later they received a report saying there is no wheat at Odessa. It's not here. It's stuck kidding? on the farm. No, it's stuck on the farms because they couldn't the, – the, the internal transportation system – uh, in Russia was so, so thoroughly disrupted uh, by the beginning of the First World War. Basically, the Russian army had commandeered all the trucks and was starting to relay some tracks to where Boy, they wanted to go. Today, we? Well, yes, and in so the Ukraine and in Russia, it's uh, you know. So, is that wheat there? Are the uh, the keys clear? Is uh, is the grain handling uh, the elevators? Are they still operational? And uh, that's just one stage. But the other thing is, is it's very important to understand is it isn't just a question of sending in ships, picking up the wheat and coming back out. Uh, the whole system is by nature a flow. It's a flow of wheat. It's a supply chain. It's a supply chain, exactly. So you have to be sure that it's not just that there is wheat in the ports. Okay, so there may be you know, half a dozen silos full of wheat. But you then have to get the wheat flowing from the farms mm. through the transportation system in a steady stream into the ports. And the ships have to be running a shuttle service, or if you prefer, it's, it's a bit like a giant conveyor belt system, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And the whole, everything needs to work. And someone needs to check that all these elements are in place. So, yes, all right, you send the ships in, but can the wheat flow? And many of the Ukrainian ports have either been captured by the Russians or out of commission because of damage. Well, yes. I mean, you're seeing pictures of some phenomenal levels of damage, and I, I, and I don't, I just simply don't know. But um, I, as I say, just back of my head, there's this. I just do remember you know, four days after they land at Gallipoli, the report arrives in London saying there's no wheat at Odessa. Wow, that was a, a fascinating summary of. Um what transpired in 1915 versus what could transpire today in um, lifting the, the Russian blockade of Ukrainian wheat. Dr. Lambert, uh, in the office before we started the podcast, uh, we talked about the uh, long-term ramifications and uh, potential solutions to this blockade and crisis in the Black Sea. I want to give you the last word because there's a few things that uh, we spoke of earlier that uh, haven't yet come out. So over to you, sir. 
Thank you. Well, I think uh, one of the first things is is that I mentioned is is that people are focused on actual physical wheat. They're not focusing. The real problem is with its price, not the actual supply of wheat. It's the price that one is, is causing the problem. And uh, so much of what one reads uh, right now in, 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 in the press, it just hasn't thought through some of the practicalities. And I mentioned some of them uh, in, in answer to your previous question. But it, it's just the logistics involved of moving 20 million tons of wheat out of Ukraine. I mean, it has to go by sea. There's no rail. I mean, there is rail, but it can move you know, a few wagon loads. There, you know, it, there just isn't the bandwidth for land communications uh, that exists at sea. It's always been that way. It's always cheaper and uh, easier to go by sea. And there's a lot greater capacity. You go back right to Maham, that's what he says. Um, and then the final uh, element in this is, 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 is that it must be remembered that this is a flow of wheat. It isn't just you send in a few ships, you pick up the wheat and leave and you're done and you're finished. It's a constant flow through the system and that takes time. And no one is talking about the flows and times and the, as I say, you, you have to go by sea. And the same weapon that menaced the British fleet in 1915, the sea mine menaces that potential flow today. So some yes. things just don't change. There was mines that they, the mines in the Black Sea, that's the number one weapon of uh, choice. And it's the, it, it got French ships, it got British ships, it got Turkish ships, it got Russian ships, and of course it got German ships. The Gerben and the Breslau ultimately went down to mines. Absolutely fascinating. And I might, uh, at the end of uh, part one here, disagree with Sir Michael Howard and say that you're not only uh, a first-rate economist, but a first-rate historian. And listening to you, sir, uh, make these parallels between World War One and uh, today in the 21st century, I would also add that you're a first-rate planner and a maritime strategist. You've really enlightened us and our readers to uh, what might happen here as we try to find uh, creative solutions and compromise to the problem of uh, uh, the wheat and world food crisis that is uh, looming over us. As we talked about before we started the podcast, you know, one of my favorite quotes by George Santayana, who quipped, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. This is not the first time that the flow of Black Sea grain has threatened an international crisis, and Russia's blockade of Ukraine itself is yet another episode in a lineage of Black Sea aggression under President Vladimir Putin. The current war in Ukraine has been the culmination of decades of Russian geopolitical maneuvers, from near constant friction with Ukrainian coastal authorities to its invasion of Georgia in 2008 and the annexation of Crimea in 2014, something we here at the Center for Maritime Strategy call the boiling frog that has finally reached its boiling point. Dr. Lambert, thank you so much for your commentary today. I think this has been a fascinating uh, part one of our podcast on uh, the crisis in the Black Sea. And uh, next, uh, we will interview Dr. Ian Ralby from the IR Concilium on uh, the current economic and geopolitical challenges of doing something in the region to alleviate the blockade. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Admiral. And if I may add, if you wish to uh, contradict the assessment of uh, Sir Michael Howard, you're on your own. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, we're back for Maritime Nation, Russia's Hunger Blockade of Ukraine, Part 2. Uh, it was a wonderful session in Part 1 with uh, Dr. Nick Lambert, 
and a historical perspective uh, that goes back uh, to World War One and the Battle of Gallipoli and the role of uh, wheat and grain in that conflict. In part two, we're delighted to have with us this afternoon Dr. Ian Ralby, the CEO of IR Concilium, IR meaning Ian Ralby. It's a family firm specializing in maritime and resource security. In fact, uh, Ian's mom, Rohini Ralby, is his managing director and also an expert in strategy. And I think that's uh, pretty cool. Ian, you were one of the first to identify the far-reaching ripple effects Russia's blockade was going to have and is currently having outside of just Russia and Ukraine. So um, what made you and your team take notice of Russia's hunger blockade? And if you can, give us some numbers. In other words, um, the percentage or the volume of wheat and grains in the Ukraine that are normally exported under... uh, other circumstances is just staggering. Can you enlighten the audience, please? Absolutely. I, I think anyone who has driven across Ukraine would know that it has some of the most obviously fertile soil on earth. And the pride of Ukraine in its agricultural production uh, can't be overstated. Uh, the importance of the Ukrainian grain market is immense. And what was very clear prior to the invasion. Uh, was that uh, these supply chains were grossly at risk. And so my team and I, uh, and you mentioned my mother, she was instrumental in this, uh, started trying to raise alarm bells well before uh, the 24th of February, uh, indicating that this was a a critical issue that we needed to get ahead of. Uh, There are really only two supply routes through the Black Sea, major shipping lanes that go through the Black Sea and carry a substantial portion of the world's export market in grain. Uh, Between Russia and Ukraine, 30% of the export market in wheat is moving through both the Kerch Strait and the Odessa ports. Uh, And that is just an absolutely staggering amount of not just wheat, but also a a critical uh, resource for other production. So it's it's, uh, a really important food supply chain that has all kinds of knock-on consequences beyond what we normally even think about. And I'll come back to that in a second, because it isn't just wheat, uh, it's corn. And in fact, Ukraine has become uh, almost uh, the, the largest producer of corn worldwide or exporter of corn worldwide uh, in just a few years. It now accounts for 17% of the global export market alone. Um, And that is a critically important grain for uh, many nations around the world, and that can't be overstated either. And finally, uh, what probably got the most attention in the early days uh, of the conflict was the the, uh, sunflower production. And between Russia and Ukraine, uh, but primarily in Ukraine, they account for uh, 75 to 80% of not just the sunflower, but the sunflower seed and sunflower seed oil markets. That is a tremendous amount of dependence on a very small amount of, of Uh, territory uh, for the entire world's supply chain of food. And what was uh, concerning us at the outset was that with relative ease, uh, Russia could block the Kerch Strait, which it has done in the past, and it could uh, take advantage of the situation to ensure uh, that the Odessa Oblast and its 17 ports uh, would be inaccessible. And that, in fact, did occur within about uh, 24 to 48 hours of the outset of the invasion. And so uh, we could tell that there was going to be a food security issue right off the bat. And so we were trying to get ahead of that. Now, you and I talked about this uh, 
about a month ago, you brought it to my attention. You'd had a conversation with uh, Fiona Hill, uh, who is one of the uh, United States' foremost experts on Russia and the history of that relationship. Um, is there anything you can share with us about that conversation and Ms. Hill's concerns uh, on the same thing? Well, I think um, when, when I first mentioned Grain, her, uh, uh, her attention was, was, was hooked because um, this is not a new concern. It's just a, a concern that we haven't really paid enough attention to over the years. And so um, even long before the war, if you were watching uh, either the maritime space or the grain market, you would have known that this was one of the vulnerabilities where uh, an invasion of, of Ukraine beyond Crimea um, which we've now experienced, um, would impact not just uh, Ukraine and Russia, but the entire world. Um, and I think if you, if you map out the supply chains and look at who is reliant on uh, those grain exports, you see that we are not looking at just uh, a matter of, of an inconvenience or a decrease in uh, certain goods being available. We're looking at a, a major hunger crisis in already fragile societies where in some cases, uh, the states are already on the brink of famine. Um, and so uh, she and, and others, um, I'll, I'll uh, uh, call out um, my, my friend and, and sometimes collaborator, uh, uh, Jim Bergeron at uh, NATO Maritime Command. Um, yeah, we know Jim, he's a good friend. Yes, yes. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so we, we've, we all spoke about this. And unfortunately, um, you know, as things move towards being kinetic, we, we had a really hard time uh, capturing the imagination and attention of, of policymakers to recognize that uh, this was an issue that would not only have immediate impact on, on a number of states, but long-term consequences uh, for uh, global security and U.S. national security as well. So uh, this is really a, the globalization of the, the conflict, uh, so to speak, well beyond the energy issues in a much more fundamental way. Right. You know, and we're about, it's, it's fortuitous, it's timely. We're about to embark on Memorial Day weekend. And for Americans, uh, that's time of remembrance of our veterans and our sacrifice. And, you know, it's, it's been a tough couple of years uh, for America in terms of uh, COVID and the economy. And we're starting to come back. And so people take this long weekend to get together with family and friends. And, you know, one of the favorite American pastimes during Memorial Day and the opening of all the uh, pools and the uh, recreational activities and resorts in this country is to get together with your family and uh, barbecue hot dogs and hamburgers and have a corn on the cob. Uh, I see uh, a potential crisis looming where those hot dog and hamburger buns and that corn on the cob uh, along the lines of inflation and the embargo or the blockade of uh, uh, Ukrainian wheat and corn and barley and sunflower uh, is going to go up. And so it's going to take a little while for Americans and others to realize that this is truly a crisis. But what do you see as uh, uh, who is the most affected abroad by this disruption uh, beyond the United States in the flow of grain out of Ukraine? And uh, what are the potential long-term effects of this supply chain collapse if it happens? Um, I think everybody on earth is going to feel this to some degree. Um, I was in Fiji uh, at the beginning of, of April, and it was fascinating that in the very first conversation I had there with a the cab driver, uh, he was able to note that they, as far from Ukraine as you can get on this planet, were feeling the conflict, not just in the price of fuel, but also in the price of food. Um, and that is a really um, 
you know, stunning immediate commentary on on where things are going. Um, I think price of food is is certainly something that that uh, is going to be difficult to to avoid. Um, and the, the the grain market has has demonstrated that already. Uh, if you follow the the just the price of corn, wheat, soybeans, and others, um, it's already had incredible ripple effects. Um, but that immediate access to food um, is a, a really critical factor for a number of states, and they are they are not just those uh, in the immediate neighborhood of the Black Sea, um, Egypt, Morocco, Indonesia, Philippines. Um, they are spread out across the globe, um, and countries aren't just relying on a small amount of grain. They're relying on uh, as much as 50% of their, their uh, supply uh, coming directly from Ukraine. These are consequences that um, are really concerning, not just for food security, but also physical security, in that uh, we have seen throughout history that when people get hungry, they find a, a, a need to fight for their, their survival. Um, and this is not about uh, a convenience or inconvenience. It's about actual physical Maslow's hierarchy of basic needs. Um, yeah. it, is, it is about uh, actually getting the, the most fundamental need uh, of our human existence and, and having sustenance. So um, we could see very easily conflicts in a lot of different parts of the world um, that uh, also have a recent precedent in that uh, in 2011, Many scholars still tie uh, a change in the price of corn to the Arab Spring and the disaffection having reached a point where uh, once people were struggling to afford food, uh, it, the intolerance of, of uh, their governments and, and societies became so much that it was worth it uh, to risk everything to, to stand up and, and face down uh, who they saw as their oppressors. And so this is, uh, this is a really concerning issue for, for many countries, but there's also a side to it we haven't really talked about. Um, even, even in the coverage that has occurred since our political article and others, uh, we haven't heard a lot about secondary and third order uh, markets. So take Turkey. Um, Turkey buys about $1.8 billion worth of grain from Russia and Ukraine. Um, wheat alone, in fact. Um, and uh, that is then converted into other supplies. Turkey is the world's largest producer of wheat flour. They control about 20% of the flour market. So if you go to the grocery store to buy flour to make bread or cookies or, or anything for this holiday weekend, there's a good chance that you're gonna get some Turkish wheat in the mix um, or Turkish flour in the mix uh, made from Ukrainian wheat. And that is a really uh, big concern because in uh, about another month's time, uh, the existing supply that uh, Turkey had in store will run out. And if there is not a lot that is done to make up for that, uh, their place in that market is going to be very much in jeopardy. And they are uh, not just slightly ahead, they're massively ahead of the next largest producer. I think Kazakhstan is next at 9% of the global market. So 20% to 9% is a big jump. But they are also the number two producer of pasta after Italy. Um, and that sounds kind of almost like, well, okay, we could live without spaghetti for a little while, but that's not the point. The point not is if that you're that... Italian. No, <laughs> no <we both laughs> I just did seven years in Italy. So yeah. I, was gonna say, I can't live without it. I either. remember vividly some, uh, some dinners with you in Naples, but, um, uh, I think the, uh, the, the challenge is that, uh, the four countries that rely most heavily on Turkish export of pasta. Um, and other food supplies, uh, all of which will be affected by this, are Venezuela, Iraq, Somalia, and Iran. 
those are not four countries that we want to have a food security crisis on top of everything else. Yeah. And Venezuela Very is particularly vulnerable. Right. We're looking at hunger crisis in our own backyard here in the United States. And so that, that's a major, major concern. And basically what you're saying here is that this food shortage could create a series of tipping points. So, And not just in one region, as you mentioned with the 2011 Arab Spring, but in multiple regions around the globe that could see these food-based tipping points cause further unrest. Exactly. And Indonesia, um, you know, uh, Myanmar, uh, other places that um, uh, really do not need further, uh, further challenges to, to tip, especially on the heels of the pandemic, which has been so difficult, as you said earlier, for all of us. Well, Ian, you mentioned early on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and that's a, that's a throwback to Plebeer at the Naval Academy many, many years ago, but still relevant today when you talk about hygiene factors and just basic human needs. And so uh, very, very relevant to this crisis. You also Mary, uh, mentioned the uh, Arab Spring. That's scary, too, because we were involved uh, with that in 2011 uh, at Six Fleet headquarters, and uh, we don't want to go back to something like that again, which had a very uncertain outcome and certainly an outcome that nobody was pleased with in Libya. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one other one other piece that that uh, we don't uh, think about all that much or talk about all that much um, is the raw supply for other agricultural producers, mm. uh, fertilizer. So uh, India is a major uh, agricultural producer, and it has a huge agricultural demand given its its uh, billion plus population. India has found itself in the position of having to. Uh, stay on the fence, uh, so to speak, uh, partly because 100% of its fertilizer supply comes from Russia. And so uh, the globalization of different supply chains actually factors into this. And countries uh, in South America, including Brazil and Argentina, are also heavily reliant on that base supply uh, of fertilizer in order to make sure that they are able to produce uh, the now very large quantities of grain that would otherwise be potentially a, a means of, of making up for some of the shortfall out of Ukraine. And so we have we have so many different factors that allow for uh, Russia to weaponize its position uh, and its control, not just of, of the uh, physical supplies, but also the shipping lanes um, that we, uh, you know, we could see this on the horizon back in, in February before things kicked off. Uh, and unfortunately, we've arrived here. Uh, we are seeing right. full scale weaponization. Uh, and I think just today, uh, Putin has indicated uh, a desire to uh, to use uh, hunger as the negotiating chip uh, for trying to relieve some of the sanctions. So uh, we've arrived at, at exactly what was what was concerning us back in February. Right. And uh, very much a concern, particularly because uh, Russia has become an expert at weaponizing oil and gas. And so if you just change the commodity uh, to foodstuffs, uh, they know what they're doing, and that is indeed uh, uh, both scary and concerning. And you mentioned uh, your excellent political article from late February, and it's bounced around in social media and been uh, oft-quoted by a number of uh, you know reporters and uh, news media outlets. You uh, were one of the first and only observers to connect the Sino-Russian Economic Treaty to what we're now seeing with uh, Russia's economic warfare. And I want to go back to that political article because uh, you had uh, several likely and not mutually exclusive 
courses of action for President Putin to take. Uh, I want to read them. There are five. They're quick. And then uh, ask you to comment on them. Uh, The first, use faux benevolence to expand Russia's hegemony and secure recognition of its claims to Ukraine. Two, target certain states to fuel the conflict as a distraction and a drain on Russia's adversaries. Three, proceed to seize other non-NATO states and their supply chains. Uh, Four, leverage the pact with China to draw states away from Western influence. And five, and finally, seek China's recognition of Russian invaded territories in exchange for Russian recognition of China's claims to Taiwan. So um, to what degree may China be seen as complicit in Russia's war of wheat? Back to you. I think that China is the catalyst for this war. Uh, we wouldn't have had the invasion on the 24th of February if we did not have uh, the deal between China and Russia on the 4th of February. That deal was what allowed for Putin to know that even in the face of global sanctions of the sort he's now experienced, the economic sovereignty of Russia was going to be guaranteed by China insofar as he could produce and supply to China as much oil and gas and as much grain as uh, Russian territory could could uh, manage. And so with a guaranteed purchaser being the largest purchaser of both in the world, um, he was in very good stead to know that he could he could stomach any any degree of sanctions. I think he's exceeded uh, his um, or he's, he's rather underperformed uh, on his uh, military ambitions. And so uh, the the movement to uh, try to actually claim any kind of of genuine control or, or um, uh, ownership of Ukraine at this point is is very weak. Um, and, and the likelihood of, of proceeding on to other non-NATO states is, is perhaps uh, less acute now than it was, but it's still not uh, certainly in any way gone. Um, but uh, I think that China has uh, put itself in an awkward position because uh, it, it is trying to play uh, both sides and managed to uh, survive as a, a leading hegemon in now two different global economies. Uh, there's the uh, long-standing split between the, the global economy, uh, the one that we recognize as being legitimate, and the illicit economy, uh, which has long been uh, in existence and, and uh, has grown in recent years uh, in terms of its reliance on the maritime domain as well. And that's something uh, we've had the chance to work on together. Right. But um, uh, there's a third economy that is now emerging, and that is that of sanctioned states and their enablers. And so with uh, Russia joining the likes of Venezuela, Iran, um, North Korea, and others, we are seeing that states like China and indeed Turkey as well are becoming a, a sort of uh, fence sitter to try to play both economies at the same time. And, uh, and that is a, a really uh, difficult uh, position for those who wish to stay entirely in the legitimate economy and yet still trade with partners like China and Turkey. And so uh, we're getting to the point where states are going to have to make a choice. Uh, and China is foremost among those that uh, are going to have to make a choice, whether they want to uh, carry on with Russia now that it has uh, made its move on, on Ukraine and on global grain supplies, uh, as well as its own oil and gas uh, infrastructure, um, and decide whether 
that's the uh, the bed it wants to stay in or if it wants to get back into uh, uh, the legitimate global economy in, in a very square and and, uh, and clear sense. Okay, got it. Um, I think you, you nailed four out of five. Can you uh, define for our listeners what you mean by faux benevolence in Russia? That's a great term. Yeah, so I think that this is this is something uh, Russia has done a very good job of in the past on uh, energy supply chains. Um, uh, Russia has a history of uh, making promises and, and sort of seeming uh, to be uh, the kinder, gentler uh, global party um, with really the, the, the real power, uh, while at the same time uh, stabbing everyone. Um, but foam uh, benevolence would be, for example, uh, to um, intentionally withhold grain supplies to a country like Yemen or, or Lebanon or uh, or Egypt, um, and then uh, very visibly using its uh, rather infamous information operations uh, to control the narrative, um, showed that it was indeed uh, the country that was coming to Lebanon's or Egypt's or uh, Yemen's aid uh, by making a heroic effort to, uh, to provide the grain that, in fact, they had all along. Um, and so uh, this, this sort of... Um, withholding and then uh, providing of supplies that uh, uh, come at a time when, when states are feeling extreme crisis and desperation uh, is something that, that uh, Russia could easily do and is indeed doing in different contexts uh, to try to win in favor and uh, to, to try to win a degree of loyalty. Well, thank you for that uh, clarification. That's really interesting. And uh, Steve likes that, uh, that term a lot. So, we come to the point now, uh, let's talk about solutions to the problem. Um, there are a variety of ideas floating out there from trying to truck or take grain over land or by rail to getting the United Nations to establish a humanitarian corridor for non-aligned coalitions to escort ships of grain out of the Black Sea. We even talked about a NATO option, which is... Uh, uh, dangerous and escalatory. Um, in your article, uh, you talk about three potential responses or approaches. Uh, one, drive a wedge between Russia and China by making China uncomfortable in its relationship with Russia. We talked to uh, Dr. Lambert about that this morning from a historical or from a historian's perspective, and he saw that as the most dangerous COA. Uh, because of China's dependence on wheat and had a very bad crop this year, as you know. Uh, your second idea is to rally food supplies to provide resilience to the states most dependent on, Ukra on Ukrainian exports and in the process expressly guarantee Ukraine's economic sovereignty and survival. And your third idea was to watch Russia's maritime movements. I fully agree with that, naval and commercial, and be prepared to respond to them. So... Um, what do you think about uh, these three potential courses of action? And is there a path ahead that you think is the best option? And I'd love to discuss that with uh, between you, me, and Steve. Uh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I think we have to add the fourth, which is get the grain out, um, which is the, uh, the, the, the new consequence of this having all actually uh, happened. Um, uh, the article itself is uh, bizarrely uh, out, out of date at this point, having uh, come out uh, couple months ago. Um, but it, it is, I think, still uh, exactly what I would recommend. We have to make states 
choose. Uh, we can't allow for this uh, this third economy to uh, to really take hold uh, with enablers. Um, sure, the sanctioned states themselves um, are going to do what they can to survive. But if if a major global power uh, like China is uh, is willing to play in that space, um, we need to make it as uncomfortable for them as possible to do that. And yes, that is risky. Um, but if if uh, Ukraine's taught us anything, uh, uncommon courage is is uh, is inspiring, and and it's unbelievably necessary at the moment. Uh, so I, I think we need to we need to recognize that uh, we can't be friends to all and enemies to none. Uh, China is not uh, not on our our side in this. Um, they they made this conflict happen with their their economic policy, uh, and economic policy uh, could help uh, divorce them from it at this point. Uh, and so we need to uh, we need to go ahead and, and find ways to to make it so that uh, there is a different uh, there is a realignment mm -hmm. uh, of relations with with Russia and China because uh, either uh, they're going to stick together uh, or China is more likely uh, to want to continue to be a, a legitimate global hegemon and, and actually uh, move away from Russia and I think we need to to encourage them in that regard. Um, the second, in terms of rallying food supplies, plays into that, because one of the one of the things that we uh, perhaps can do mm -hmm. is, without military action, help safeguard the economic sovereignty of Ukraine by backfilling its its orders. In other words, for all the states that are relying on grain shipments coming from Ukraine, so the the, the Indonesias, the Lebanons, the Egypts, uh, that are going to have a, a critical shortfall. Why can't we take all the surplus we can, plus anything that would have gone to China as the offending state in this mix, mm. um, and say, uh, you know what, uh, United States, Australia, France, these other grain producers, Canada, we will try our best to make sure that uh, the Ukrainian uh, exports arrive, but they come via these other partners and, and friends. Um, and you know what, Indonesia, go ahead and pay Ukraine for that. Uh, don't pay us. Uh, this is our our uh, our gift to Ukraine is is backfilling their uh, their orders. And so uh, we can secure their economic standing as well as their place in the global grain market, while at the same time making China realize that by signing that deal on the fourth of February, they got as much access as they need to to grain. We're not going to starve the Chinese population. They just have to get it from Russia now. Um, that's what they chose. And so if they want to choose differently, they need to take a different policy. And that, that is, I think, really important for uh, accomplishing two ends at once. And at the same time, uh, the maritime space is mm -hmm. critical to all of this. Couldn't agree more. We say this all the time, and you've probably heard uh, me, me give uh, lectures as much as I've heard you on, on this notion of no shipping, no shopping, and the, the importance of 90% uh, of, of world trade happening by sea, and the fact that no matter where you are on Earth, whether it's in a coastal area or a landlocked state that you're going to be able to go into almost any store and find something that's traveled by boat. But we don't think about that as much from a food standpoint. And we forget that the uh, the bulkers that are moving around the world are carrying all that grain, all that flour, all that pasta, all that food. And um, I think we have to, uh, just as some of the insights for this came from watching the Black Sea maritime movements prior to the conflict, I think we need to be very, very critical in how we examine uh, not just the military, but the, the, the commercial movement of, of vessels uh, into and out of the Black Sea. And, I, uh, you know, the Ukrainians have done a very good job 
of starting to try to put pressure on Turkey to uh, mm-hmm. stop stolen grain shipments uh, from leaving under different different contexts and different guises. Um, but I think we need to help them in that. And we need to try to do almost what uh, the Port State Measures Agreement does for fish. If you have a, a catch of fish that is illegally caught and you try to land it in a country that is a member of that agreement, uh, they're going to have a really hard time landing it because it, it's been, um, uh, you know, it hasn't been... Uh, transparent in its supply chain. Similarly, if, if a grain shipment arrives in, you know, wherever, uh, you know, anywhere from, from uh, Norfolk to, uh, you know, Batam, uh, we, we need to be able to say, where did that come from? And if it, if it is uh, not clearly uh, legitimate grain, and if it looks in any way like it's stolen Ukrainian grain, uh, we need to seize it and, and uh, take action against the, uh, the vessel that brought it and anyone uh, tied to it through beneficial ownership. So um, there is a lot that we could do without actually uh, getting NATO involved and, and, and making a move that would escalate the conflict. You've hit on well, an important point. Let me just stop you for a yeah. minute with sort of loaves and fishes going together here uh, on this in more than just the biblical sense. So causing perturbations for China in regard to its wheat shipments. I mean, China has other food needs too. Uh, that could be affected by this, especially fish. I know they import lots of their protein as well. So if you start to look for ways to benignly affect this, if you're not letting Chinese fishing fleets into certain places, that's going to affect them as well. So they they are, maybe we ought to point that out, China's very dependent on imported food, despite what a lot of Americans might think in terms of, of what China provides itself. Massively. And, um, you know, we we there's a lot we can do if we pay more attention to these supply chains um, to help bring transparency to, to the food market um, and make sure that we aren't just as we don't want conflict diamonds that, that have uh, been acquired through any kinds of uh, human rights violation. We don't want conflict grain uh, yes. that has been stolen from the Ukrainians and, and shipped under some guise uh, to uh, to different parts of the world. So. Uh, we, we need to, to come together globally on this. We've globalized our food supply chains mm-hmm. to the point that one conflict is now a crisis for everyone. Uh, so we need to come together to try to resolve that. And that brings up that, that final point of, okay, uh, there's a lot we could do in the long term, but how do we get the grain out right now? And I think we have to recognize that as much as we have weaponized transparency for uh, countering the ability of, of Russia to uh, sort of have its way, um, we need to be very careful about how much we are sharing mm-hmm. uh, about any kind of plans to, to, to move grain. It's going to draw Russian attention. They know that this is the critical point. This is their, this is their tool. This is their leverage. Um, and so we can't be naive in thinking that they aren't paying attention to everything we say and do. Um, and so if we talk about shipping or trucking mm-hmm. or, uh, or rail transport, they're going to target that infrastructure. And They can do that, and they will do that. I am bothered by the fact that uh, for the first, uh, the majority of this campaign, 75% of it, it was viewed as only a ground or a land campaign. I think with the catalyst of the sinking of the Moskva and this blockade and the future crisis in food, people have woken up to the fact that this is also a maritime campaign, and it requires a maritime solution. You talked about moving grain over land, and we had that discussion with uh, Nick Lambert this morning. That's hard. 
and I don't think it can uh, even come close no to the volume. volume that can be moved yeah. by sea. And my colleague, Dr. Wills, agrees with me there. There's also the question of, uh, you know, the blockade of the Danube River, which affects uh, not only Romania, but all the countries that are uh, upriver or upstream there that has to be taken into account. And so we need some creative solutions. And you and I had talked about uh, the potential. Okay, if NATO goes in there uh, while a kinetic war is still going on, that's dangerous. There could be a mistake or a miscalculation leading to World War III. But there are other non-aligned nations that could do this. And in particular, I was impressed with the fact that the United Nations Secretary General Guterres uh, both went to Kiev and uh, talked to President Zelensky. And he also had a conversation, a fairly long conversation, with President Putin. And uh, so I think the UN has to play a role. It must play a role here. And there are potentially some non-aligned countries uh, who are impacted by this uh, uh, embargo on wheat that could provide a, uh, uh, a safe corridor mm -hmm. uh, to get the wheat out and other exports out and a humanitarian corridor also for uh, folks that need medical attention. And I'm thinking, uh, Egypt, which has a yeah. very powerful and respectable navy, accompanied by perhaps uh, Tunisia and Morocco. Mm -hmm. uh, these are partner time. nations with NATO, but not uh, member nations. And certainly uh, a couple of them have a uh, relationship with Russia. And uh, of course, as soon as uh, we discussed that idea, uh, some of the pundits said, well, Russia would veto any UN <laughs> action in the UN Security Council. And the United States has the chair now. Uh, that may be the case unless the Secretary General and his team at the UN can figure out how to make this in Russia's interests. Uh, so there's, there's a number of potential courses of action. And, uh, you know, we here at the Center for Maritime Strategy would like to see that accelerated before mm -hmm. this crisis becomes worse and uh, pay attention to maritime solutions. Those same escort ships could also perform sort of a maritime inspection uh, routine as well, which is something navies all over the world do, board, search, inspect, even call and ask where you're going. What port did you come from? Where are you going to? And those non-aligned nations could perform that role as well, and that might even f help ferret out some of those illegal stolen grain shipments and alert people to who that is uh, before they can land somewhere. We talked a lot this morning, Ian, about the, the uh, problem with mines, and I, I think we've treated that one uh, uh, pretty thoroughly. So I won't go there this afternoon. And there's certainly a lot to chew here. Uh, this is an issue that's increasingly getting more attention and ultimately needs action soon. So uh, before we adjourn here, let me turn back to Dr. Ian Ralby for the last word. Anything you'd like to say and wrap up, Ian? Well, I think uh, you mentioned my mother at the outset, Rohini Ralby, and she is uh, she is the strategy expert on which I most uh, frequently rely, on whom I most frequently rely. Uh, and uh, she had actually mentioned that same notion of uh, of trying to look for uh, African navies to to step up. And I think the the idea behind that is is where I think we we should end the the conversation, which is that. Uh, this is not a U.S. problem. This is not a NATO problem. This is not a Russia-Ukraine problem. It's a global problem uh, with tremendous basic human issues at stake uh, that are going to be uh, felt not just uh, in the next few months, but but in the next few years as we uh, come to try to uh, recover from uh, this situation, which is far from over, uh, and we we can't we can't jump to to the end before we're, we've finally reached the. Uh, 
the the, the full uh, extent of of the impact. Uh, so we need to we need to try to encourage states to recognize uh, the role they could mm -hmm. play, given how globalized we are. And Africa uh, is one of the places where we could see tremendous potential in terms of both naval activity and production of agriculture and fertilizer. And so mm. uh, I think we need to encourage our friends. Uh, in parts of the world that are are often overlooked and underappreciated uh, because they could actually save us. Dr. Ian Rowby, thank you very much, sir. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, both of our guests, uh, both Ian and Dr. Nicholas Lambert, uh, and my uh, uh, partner in crime, Dr. Steve Wills, for thank joining you, us today to provide insight and historical perspective on the grain crisis in the Black Sea and its current and long-term implications. This episode of Maritime Nation has been produced and edited by the Center for Maritime Strategy and the Navy League of the United States. A special thanks to our sound engineer, James Patterson, who has a degree in broadcast journalism from BYU, for making this recording possible and being the principal uh, uh, setup uh, and organizer of our new podcast and webinar facility at the Navy League. You can find this and future episodes on Apple and Google Podcast as well as Spotify. We welcome your feedback and happy Memorial Day weekend. <laughs>